from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is BPR News Presents The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and welcome to the debut episode of the BPR News Team's new show. Why The Porch? Well, that's the place where people gather to talk about all things important and maybe some things that are just a little less so. And that's what we'll be doing on our program, bringing you in-depth interviews, conversations, and discussions with newsmakers, personalities, and community leaders in our region. In this particular moment in history, we believe it's vital to give ourselves more time to hear about what's happening in Western North Carolina and Southern Appalachia. So thanks for joining us. Later on, BPR's Cass Harrington will go hiking with the superintendent of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Cassius Cash, who's holding racial healing hikes in America's most visited national park. Then BPR's Lily Kinnep speaks with the first black principal in Macon County Schools post-integration. But first, North Carolina will be one of the states that decides this fall's presidential election, plus which party controls the U.S. Senate. It also has one of the most watched gubernatorial elections in the U.S. this fall, plus every seat in the North Carolina General Assembly is on the ballot, as well as the Council of States, seats on county commissions, city councils, town aldermen, you get the point. North Carolina is first in the country in this respect. It's the first state to mail out mail-in ballots that have been requested by voters. They go out Friday, September 4th, and because of the pandemic, requests for absentee mail-in ballots this year in North Carolina are more than 16 times greater than at this point four years ago. I chatted over Zoom with Buncombe County Elections Director Corrine Duncan about all things mail-in ballot. So in 2016, we had about 7,500 requests total. So that was for the whole election. Now, currently, with about two and a half months left before the election, we've already received 25,000 requests in just Buncombe County. So a very large increase. Right, and we're hearing statewide it's about 15 times more at this point. That's just before mail-in ballots actually get mailed out. So for those who have already requested it, we'll start with them. What should they expect? The ballots are going out on Friday, September 4th. So what should those who have already requested a ballot, what should they expect in the coming weeks? So first, thanks for pointing out the request process. So in North Carolina, you must request an absentee ballot. There's no ballots going out to everyone in the state. If you want an absentee by mail ballot, you need to request one. So once you have requested it, uh, ballots will start going out on September 4th. And they'll show up in the mail. They'll be marked with official elections mail. And there'll be instructions in there to let you know how to vote your ballot. You'll need a witness. And you'll need to read the instructions and make sure that you sign. And then you have two options to send in the ballot by mail. Or you can drop it off in person. And there's two ways to drop off in person. You can do it at an early voting location. Now, at an early voting location, there won't be any special lines for you to drop off your absentee. You would have to go through that process. Uh, But we will have one at our office. So you can come to our office and uh, there'll be a dedicated line for accepting absentee by mail ballots there. I want to make sure that everyone knows that when you're returning your absentee ballot, you're returning that to an elections official and it's someone who will check in that ballot and will have you sign a log. 
So yeah, just to go through a few of those things right now, who qualifies as a witness and what is the witness process that someone will need to know to fill out a ballot, to fill out their their mail-in absentee ballot? So anyone can be a witness. They need to be over 18. And you're there witnessing that the person who's filling out the ballot is the person who requested the ballot. So that's your job as a witness to make sure that that is true. You're not witnessing the person's vote you are just making sure that that person who voted the ballot is that is that person. Okay, then turning it in, who is allowed to turn the ballot in? Whether they mail it back, whether they drop it off at an early voting site, whether they take it to the county elections office, who is allowed to return the ballot? So only the voter or a near relative. So that's your spouse or a direct relative. And this means that you can't return a ballot for your friends or neighbors. It's got to be only the voter or the close relative. And again, that you'll be signing along that that you turned it in for them. For people mailing it back instead of returning it in person, what do they need to know about mailing the ballot back? So mailing the ballot back, the probably the biggest thing that people need to know this year is that the Postal Service is experiencing some delays because of the giant volume of mail they're getting. So uh, our request forms, the deadline is October 27th, but we really think you should get it in a week before that. And the post office has also put out information uh, confirming that too. They're also encouraging to kind of be a week ahead of deadlines. So that's the same thing with the ballot. You can mail your ballot uh, and it just needs to be postmarked on election day, but we need to receive that ballot within three days of election day. So by that Friday after the election. So if you mail your ballot on election day, you're really taking a risk. We need you to get that ballot in early to make sure it's counted. So just to give everyone an, an idea of that, if you wait to need three days after the election, that would be Friday, November 6th. So if there's a delay of maybe about two weeks with uh, with mail right now, so that would mean most people, if they want to make sure their ballot is uh, mail-in ballot is counted, they should have it mailed by October 23rd. Two weeks before the election is a good idea. Sorry, that would be October 20th. I apologize. Um, okay, thank you. So um, those are this is for people who have already requested the ballots. Now, if you've requested a ballot, does that mean you have to vote by ballot or by mail-in? Uh, by mail-in voting, or can you still vote either early voting or on election day? That's another great question. So yes, if you request a ballot, you can decide, hey, I don't want to vote by mail. I would like to go vote in person. You are perfectly fine to do that. When you go vote in person, the system will mark you as voted and will cancel your absentee by mail ballot and the request. Okay, for people who have yet to request a mail-in ballot, how do they go about doing that and when can they expect the ballot to uh, come to them? Absentee ballot requests are available online at our website. You can download it, fill it out, sign it, and send it in. You can also come to our office and get one in person. We've got a setup in our lobby for you to be able to do that. We also have a drop box in our lobby if you want to drop it off in person. Uh, if you don't have access to a printer or you can't come to our office, you can also call us and we'll mail you a request form. Okay. Um, if they come to get it in person, I mean, what, what sort of ID, if any, do people need to show to be able to request a, a mail-in ballot? You don't need an ID to request. When you fill out the form, you will need to provide ID. 
So your driver's license or the last four of your social security, and you'll need to sign the form. And we'll look at all of that information to make sure that it matches what's in our records before we authorize the request. What other sorts of information should people know about requesting a ballot this week? The state also offered a new option in requesting a ballot. Tell us a little bit about that first. So that was a fantastic year. This is a fantastic year to start this new option, which is an online portal for requesting an absentee ballot. So currently, we have to do everything on paper. The request comes in, we scan it, we data enter it. It's a time-intensive process for the voter and for our team. Uh, so what is available now is you can go online to the state board's website and do all that requesting through their online portal. If someone hasn't registered to vote yet, when do they need to register by? And can they register and then get, how quickly would they be able to get a mail-in ballot after they register? So you can actually use a request form to register, an absentee request form to register. Um, but registration is online at our website again, and you'll have to fill out a form, make sure you fill out all of the information, all the red boxes, make sure you fill them out so that, uh, that the processing time is the least possible. If you did forget something, we would contact you and let you know and get that uh, updated. And the deadline for getting registered is October 9th. Now, in North Carolina, during early voting, you can do what's called same-day register. So you can go to an early voting site if you're not registered and get registered and vote there at the same time. So what else would you like people to know about mail-in balloting? There's obviously a lot of myths and rumors and things that are floating out about uh, mail-in balloting right now. So what are some of the things that you've been dealing with as you come up to this? As you said, again, you're at about three or four times as many ballots being requested before they even go out as you were, uh, as opposed to 2016. So what sorts of things do you want people to know right now? Um, and what sorts of questions have you been getting uh, as this process has gone along. So yes, it's a very large increase in volume. I'm very happy that North Carolina has so many options for voting so that we can be responsive when there are new challenges. 2020 has definitely brought a few to us and we have been able to respond. So that's fantastic. Yes, the volume is big and that's okay. We are um, have expanded our team to be able to handle these requests. Um, but they are a lot. So previously, you would be able to file your request, we'd be able to process it that day, and you could call us and check on it. And uh, it's taking us longer. So we're wanting everybody to be patient. The other thing is that a lot of groups have been sending out absentee request forms in the mail, and it's perfectly legal for these groups to be doing that. They're just trying to help get out the vote and uh, have uh, show what types of options there are for voting. But if you have filled out a request, you don't need to do another one. One request is all that's needed. And those ballots will start going out on September 4th and we'll process them as, as quickly as we can. We're expecting that if you've already submitted your request that you should get your ballot within two weeks. What would happen if you make more than one request for an absentee ballot? Uh, maybe even if you're doing it by accident, as you said, a lot of these mailers are coming to people that are not coming from official sources like yourself. So what happens if you make more than one request for a mail-in ballot? If you make more than one request, that's perfectly fine. We will 
take your request, make sure there weren't any changes from your original request and just process that. Uh, for us, it just slows down our process. So if you're not making changes, it's, you know, we still check it. It's not going to hurt you. It just slows down our operations. What sorts of things has, has your office been doing to handle to begin to handle this? I mean, what's it been like for for you to all to, to begin to handle this? Again, four to for about roughly four times more requests before the before you even start sending them out. And North Carolina is the first state in the country to send the mail in ballots or send mail in ballots out to voters. So, how has your office been beginning to handle this crush? What's been very different about 2020 for you? Obviously, 2020 has been very different for a lot of people, but what's it really been different for your office? So the main difference, of course, is just the volume. And so we've really had to expand the number of people who are helping out. So we've got a much larger team this year. And um, the portal, I think, will help a lot with being able to process that volume. So having more people and having the portal were the big changes this year to help us with the volume. You're already beginning now to look for uh, people who will help uh, on or for early voting and on election day and some other things, some people who volunteer opportunities and other opportunities to help your office. So what sorts of ways can people help your office uh, this, this election? Thank you. So as far as helping as an election worker, there's several ways. The first is a poll worker, and we have two types of poll workers. We have early voting, which is a 17-day commitment in Buncombe County at six-hour shifts. We've got 16 sites across the county that you can choose from, and that's an hourly position. So you get paid $12 an hour minimum to work early voting. On election day, we also have a need for poll workers, and that is a very long shift. So you're going to be working from about 5.30 in the morning to at least 7.30 at night. If you're a chief judge, you'll come back to our site and you'll check in all of those supplies. And usually we finish up at about 11. So that's a big commitment and one that we're really thankful for people joining. The pay for that position is $175 minimum, that's for an assistant, and $260 flat rate for someone who's taking on more responsibility as a chief judge. You get training and you also set up the site the night before the election. We also have, and this is a good relation to absentee, what the story's on today, is something called MAT teams. These are multi-partisan assistance teams, and these are, are our teams that go out to long care facilities and help them request and process their absentee ballots. So if anyone's interested in doing that, especially if you have experience in the healthcare world, that would be a great way to help us out. For people who are looking to volunteer, work at polls, work at early voting, work on those MAT teams, um, what sorts of protections are going to be in place for people who are working this year and for people who will be voting in person? What sorts of protections will be in place because of the pandemic? For poll workers, they will have full PPE. That's gloves, masks. They have face shields available. There's also a plexiglass shield between the poll worker and the voter at every check-in station and they have cleaning equipment. They'll also be following social distancing guidelines at the polling locations 
and they'll be cleaning any equipment that gets used between use between any uh, voter or poll worker. For voters, when they arrive at the polls, there'll be a greeter who will offer hand sanitizer and a mask if the voter doesn't have one, that they will offer that. There's also going to be single-use pens. We don't have the I Voted sticker this year. I know that's sad to a lot of people, but uh, we'll be giving out single-use pens for the voter to keep so that there's not uh, that type of contact in the polling location. And again, equipment, including the voting booths and the voting equipment will be sanitized between each use. Waiting in line this year, will the six feet of social distancing, will that be enforced by, by any election workers? And what effect could that have on lines? So we will definitely be encouraging the six foot spread and we'll have that marked. And that's a great thing to point out about the lines. So it is going to appear that lines are a lot longer than they are. During early voting, we have in Buncombe County a wait map. So you can go to that map and see how many people are at any early voting location. And that's updated every 15 minutes. And during election day, we have a list that you can also go to and look and see how many people are at the polling location that you're assigned to. Well, terrific. Is there anything else? We'll certainly catch up again as we get closer to early voting when that starts. But is there anything else you'd like to share with people? If they have questions, and we've obviously covered a lot of ground in this interview, but if they have questions, if they have heard things, and we were talking earlier about you know streams that we're seeing, you know just threads of things on Twitter or next door or just any number of places. So if they're hearing things and they want to reach out to try to get them answered, how, what should they do? Misinformation is a fantastic topic to go into. And the thing about it is there's all kinds of groups doing all sorts of things, malicious or not, that may have information that's incorrect in it. If you are unsure, go to the source. Call us, 828-250-4200. Go to our website or go to the State Board's website and find out directly what the information is. We're happy to help you. Okay, terrific. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with everybody before we end? Okay, so for absentee ballot security, first only registered voters who request an absentee ballot can get one. So there's not mailing out to all voters in North Carolina. It's only people who request the ballot. When you request, we verify a piece of ID, so either your uh, driver's license number or your social security number and your date of birth, and you sign the form so we are making sure that all of this information matches what's in our database. And that's just for the request. We also do this when the ballot's returned. Fraudulently completing even the form, let alone the ballot, is a class I felony. And we no longer publish who has requested absentee ballots. Voters are marked in the system once they have voted their absentee ballot so that they can't go vote in person on early voting or on election day. And vice versa, if you choose to go vote in person instead of voting your absentee ballot, you'll be marked accordingly. The state board also has investigators just for this purpose. So they're looking for anomalies and any aberrations that might clue into the fact that something's going on. And at the county and state level, we do extensive audits. 
So during the voting process, we're auditing and after. There's a period called Canvas that happens from election day until 10 days after, where we take time to make sure that everything was conducted correctly. That's Corrine Duncan, Buncombe County Elections Director. For more voting information, go to buncombecounty.org or the County Elections Department website where you live. The state site is ncsbe.gov, where you can register to vote, request a ballot, and look up your own voter profile. Again, that's ncsbe.gov. We'll have Corrine on again before early voting starts on October 15th. One of the elections voters in Western North Carolina will decide this fall is the open seat in the 11th Congressional District. The major party nominees in that race, Republican Madison Cawthorn and Democrat Mo Davis, will hold their first debates Friday, September 4th and Saturday, September 5th. The only place to watch them live is on the Blue Ridge Public Radio Facebook page, as we are partnering with our friends at Smoky Mountain News and Mountain Express for those debates. They start each night at 7.30. I'm Matt Bush, and you're listening to BPR News Presents The Porch. For the superintendent of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the killing of George Floyd over the summer hit especially hard. Cassius Cash is black, and his father was a police officer. The incident was so distressing, Cash had to do what he knows best. He went for a hike, and Cash noticed how it helped ease tension in his body. That spurred the idea behind a new series of hikes he's calling Smokey's Hikes for Healing. There are 10 hikes, limited to 8 people for social distancing, aimed at providing a safe space to talk about race in the fresh mountain air. BPR's Cass Harrington caught up with Cash on a trail outside the park headquarters. We'll walk into one of our little poplar trails here because it's right by the headquarters. It's called Cataract Falls. Just a nice way to be able to see some water features and also have uh, the visitor center close to you in case you need to pick up something or that kid has to go to the bathroom. You know how that goes. What we're going to be doing is talking about what's affecting us all these days, and that's race and race relations. You know, with uh, what we've been seeing unfold on national television, you know, about people of color, unarmed uh, black people getting killed um, in, in, in encounters with the police, um, is depressing within itself, right? As I would just say, as a human, as a as a human being, but more particularly as a um, African American here, we came up with the thought of race and race relations and why not have these crucial conversations in one of the more diverse ecosystems in the world uh, and how we use and how species of all different backdrops and backgrounds need to come together to make this beautiful place that we call the Smokies. What's even more so tugging at me, it tugged at me as we were watching this unfold is uh, my dad is a retired police officer and uh, I know the jobs that they have to, to do and so to see this play out as an African-American male and having a father and two brothers uh, serve as police officers, I was at a conundrum. And I needed to get out and unpack 
this, what we're living through right now. Again, with COVID keeping us locked in for so many weeks and months, and now where we're having a total concentration of these events play out on national television. So I hiked in the park, and uh, what happens, I found myself being restored, uh, being able to look at different perspectives um, in a different way than I did. And uh, what happened was what I always share with people is that you always come out of the woods better than when you went in. And that's exactly what happened uh, um, with this incident here. So I said, Would it, wouldn't it be great to have people from my community to experience the same thing? And, and we already know what the, being in a natural world does for you spiritually and physically. And so we thought this would be a great backdrop to talk about a very sensitive and long-standing conversation that's happening in this country here. We did a hike over in North Carolina along the Catalucha Divide Trail, uh, going from Purchase Knob to a resort called The Swag, and that's about a mile and a half hike. Uh, got some little hills in it, but nothing too strenuous. And um, it was amazing to see 10 strangers come together and leave his friends and that's exactly what happened but the hike is part of the journey right and being able to digest or prepare for th these conversations that we had and that's exactly what happened is we had some very uh, transparent forthright conversations from people from all walks of life and, and that's what we're trying to do here is to create these cohorts of groups that are wanting to begin their journey or continue their journey and how they can make the communities better you know, when we were seeing this play out, I was asking the question, where are we as a country when it comes to race and race relationships? And I even bored it down to East Tennessee and West North Carolina. Where, where are we with that? And so at the end of the day, my parents were able to tell me about the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, which is when I was born. And my feel is, is when my grandkids come, I want to be able to say, what did we do? during this very historical point in time. And I want to say this is what we did along with the community members of East Tennessee and West North Carolina. So this was prompted by all of this, the conversations about race and, and police violence in the country, largely stemming from George Floyd that was mm -hmm. widely publicized, mm -hmm. still being discussed. But this concept of racial healing in nature, had it been percolating in your mind for a while before? It had not. Um, as I said, I was hiking on uh, Forney Creek Trail, as, as a matter of fact, in North Carolina, and uh, I just found myself feeling better. It was like a, a phenomenon that was happening to me and just how much more relieved I felt to be able to think clearly, a, a lot more clearly, away from TV, away from all the things that, that stimulate other thoughts and just be out and really focus on one thing. And in that particular hike, I was thinking about what's happening in our country. And again, I, I just realized in the self-awareness piece of I'm feeling better about, I'm feeling more optimistic. I'm feeling about what can be my part to, to making the place better. And, um, and that's how this came, to, came into play. So what, what exactly was going on in your mind or even manifesting in your body? Because that's what anxiety and stress and emotions can do. Right. In that moment when you decided, okay, I need to go for a hike. Well, um, I know I have high blood pressure, right? And I know when my body isn't at its best. 
and um, I felt that starting to take a toll. And so I've always said that hiking in the park is good for the mind, the body, and the soul. And um, so I go, I went back to what I was familiar with, and and so, sure enough, that's what that's what happened, going through the park, and you know, doing some more research too. You know, we're doing something I I, I hope will make things better. It's making me better as an individual, uh, understanding different perspectives. But I was able to go back and look at the history, the administrative records of this park. And there was a superintendent by the name of uh, Overly, last name is Overly. He was the fifth superintendent here at the park. Served from 1958 to 1963. And what it says in our records is that Superintendent Overly heard about African-Americans not being able to rent a hotel in Gatlinburg. And he called in all the hotel owners, all the motel owners, and said that if you don't change your posture and how we treat African-Americans, I'm gonna build a hotel inside the park. And uh, that was very significant because this park was always created in a way that it would allow the outside communities to benefit, not compete with. But he was so much a believer in equal rights and treating people all the same, he was, able, he was willing to break that. And I said to myself, the courage it must have taken to tell that to maybe some friends he knew, um, people he go to church with, but yet he stood firm in having the courage to do that. And so that's the courage, same courage we're standing on today of making something different. And we don't have to be perfect in order to have progress. And so I don't know which each of these hikes is going to be like, right? Because they're 10 different people. But I'm willing to take that chance to, to make it better and, and do it with my fellow uh, community citizens. So where are we standing right now? So right now we're looking at Cataract Falls. Um, it's surprisingly as warm it is, still have water coming out of it, but it's a, it's a nice little fall as you see here now that we have little kids uh, trampling the water and, and uh, these are where memories are made. Um, and this is how generations of people, why they continue to come here because starting off at that age, you know, it's, it's great to see. I know you're a native Tennessean. Did you come here as a kid? I did not. Um, I did not grew up having a real deep connection, um, uh, relationship with the natural world, only through me being a Boy Scout uh, did I have that exposure. And um, I've always had this, I would say, dream, if you will. I used to watch this uh, outdoor show called Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom way before your time. And uh, it was cool to be able to travel around the world and see these different habitats and different animals and the protection measures that are put in place. And I could do that from the comfort of my home. So uh, when I was given the opportunity to become a wildlife biologist, I was actually privately um, living out a dream of mine, uh, being that person. Were there any, do you think, cultural or social barriers that, that you know, made national parks or the outdoors more challenging to access as a, as a kid and, and thinking, thinking about race? Yeah, I, I don't think there are any barriers. I think there has to be a level of curiosity of knowing to explain what the benefits are. Because if I'm in Knoxville and I look toward the smokers, these mountains look pretty intimidating, right? And if you don't have someone to facilitate that relationship between inner, you know, city and the natural world, it can be kind of scary. Um, I joke about this, but there's some truth to it. There are a lot of kids in urban areas, exposure only comes from TV. And I don't know about you and your favorite scary movie, but whenever you hear that, that sound effect and somebody's about to get whacked, it's in the woods, 
and it's at night. And so that, over a period of time, plays on young folks' psyche. Like, I don't want to go out there and get eaten by something or taken away or whatever. So I would say that's probably the biggest barrier is just the unknown uh, of it. And so we've been very, uh, uh, very active in making sure that we can be that facilitator. Um, during the 2016 centennial, I, I hiked 100 miles um, in the park. And every mile I made sure I had a young kid with me that had not been in the park uh, so that they could remember that and also to facilitate that relationship and um, it was amazing what those kids come out being better than when they went in about how they viewed nature and it's very soothing I'm sure for them to, to see <laughs> see your face and your welcome hand extending them to a, a place that might be uncertain or scary but they can identify with you exactly and I, I think um, it means a lot to kids to see me in this uniform uh, because the old, as the old saying is, sin is believing. Um, I didn't see African-American or a person of color walking in a flat hat. Um, and so therefore, most of my young life, I didn't even know this was a career opportunity that I could pursue. And so if people decide, not, young folks decide not to be in this occupation, at least they know they can. And for that, I'm grateful to be that person to be able to show what opportunities that are in land management organizations. Well, the hat looks good on you, I have to say. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so on the, on the hikes you've led so far, um, take us there. Like, what, what were some really touching moments that you witnessed? Um, well, what we talk about, I mean, we agreed that we would keep confidential. But at the beginning, as an icebreaker, we talk about what things are we bringing to this hike and what things do we want to leave behind? And to open up with those kind of conversation, really, it gets real about what people are bringing and what they want to be better at and um, just being a better them. We talk about these spaces that we're going to create may not necessarily be safe because if you say safe, that means that you won't be uncomfortable. But we will create a space that's brave right for you to speak you know your piece or speak your perspective and that while being uncomfortable because that's where growth happens and we all know that that you're never growing if you're always uh always comfortable um with that so we we go through several exercises that invoke thought and some thoughts are the same and some differ particularly around race and race relations and um and then at the end of that we make commitments on how we're going to continue our journey um, and being a better, a better person, how they're going to make their communities better, and that's the challenge. And I share with the group, me personally, every job I've been in, I've been working for the government for 29 years now, and every job I've had, I've been the first or the only. And I tell people that that's great because I feel that I may be making, allowing opportunities for others. But at the same time, it's not always a comfortable uh, position to be in, to be the first and the only. It's got to be exhausting yeah, some days. It is. But I tell people over time, history shows that it's worthwhile. And I feel for us to be the first to do something like this, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's my goal, it's my desire and hope and prayers that this will be worthwhile uh, at the end of our last hike here.
So before you came to Great Smoky Mountain National Park, you were the superintendent of Boston Park. Boston National Historical Park. Did coming back feel like, or coming to Tennessee, did it feel like a homecoming? Were there mixed emotions? What was it like for you? Yeah, so, you know, I started off as a wildlife biologist. And going into a cultural park like Boston, where it talks about the birth and founding of a nation, is an incredible story. Um, and not only is the story incredible, it's about the people that were involved in that story, which makes it much more rich. Uh, so that was a, a new love I found in talking about these stories. But coming back to, to the Smokies or coming back to a natural park, it's like coming back to my first love. And uh, I really feel that no matter where you are, there are stories to be told. And we're, we are expanding those stories. Like right now, we, we talk about, of course, the indigenous people that were here on this land. And we also talk about the settlers that, you, that lived in Cades Cove and, and places like that. But we also are doing research on the African-American um, cemeteries, grave sites that are here. What is that story about? And so we're expanding that story. And that's what we consider to be anti-racist, if you will, from a, from a natural, uh, from a land management standpoint, is to tell the stories, the, compl- the entire story of a landscape or, or of a, a cultural site. And who knows, the people that now will see themselves in this resource in a different way than they, they previously did may want to take up arms and, and be part of protecting it because they see themselves in the story. And I always tell people that, um, you know, when you have a connection with a space, it creates an emotional connection. And you get an emotional connection and it becomes part of your values. When it becomes part of your values, that's what you protect, right? And that's what we want to do in order to stay relevant for the next hundred years is to make sure that we stay relevant. And the main way to do that is making sure that we tell these rich stories that cover a lot of different people. At a time where racial justice conversations are at the fore, getting more media attention and national conversation than ever, in a region with with still a complex history and culture, I drove past several Confederate flags on the way here. Do you feel like your arrival in this job as superintendent was just at the right time? I, I, I do believe I am here at the right place at the right time. And I know we've had conversations around that leadership table about things like this that I I would suspect probably hadn't taken place before. And I say for that, we are all better for it uh, because it translates into everything that you talked about. How inclusive are we? Are we intentional about how we welcome people into the park? Uh, are we intentional about the stories that we tell across this park that, that, that just, um, really rolls it out of saying that we're inclusive. Um, and if you don't have those kind of conversations to help further develop your mental model, it's tough to put them into action on that. And so I believe my, you know, this book is still being written, right? And at the end, at the very end, we'll be able to look back uh, on a body of work that I know we're going to be all proud of when it comes to taking care of this park and continue to be fabric of this community and contributing in every way that we can. Cassius, it it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me and, and taking me out on a hike. All right, thank you for having me.
That's BPR's Cass Harrington hiking and talking with Great Smoky Mountains National Park Superintendent Cassius Cash. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can listen to it anytime with the free BPR mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. This is BPR News Presents The Porch. Students started back to school last month amidst the uncertain world of COVID-19 and the renewed racial justice movement across America. Franklin resident Shirley Parks remembers her own uncertain days as a student during integration in Macon County and much later in 2011 as the first black principal in Macon County schools since integration. BPR's Lily Knepp spoke with Parks as she sat on her front porch. I listened to the board meeting last night and either way you can't win. I'm glad that I'm not in have to make those decisions right now, but I think our board and our superintendent just trying to do what's best, what they can. You know, their hands are tied in a lot of things, but to keep our students and the faculty safe, you have to go by these guidelines, and it 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 hurts the students not to be in school. But I feel like the teachers are doing the best they can. I have a very good friend that's a teacher. Um, Laura Brown, she teaches at Cartuga J, and she, you know, she loves her students. She loves to teach, and and she said, you know, they're struggling. So you were the first black principal in Macon County after integration, but you were actually in school in Franklin when the schools were still segregated until third grade, I believe. Yeah. What was that like? The transition with the um, other school, it was it was all I knew because I was there in first grade and second grade. And in the we had three different classrooms. There was first grade through fourth, and then there was fifth through eighth, and then ninth through twelfth. We had one teacher, and we might have been behind a little bit, but it was good times. The transition into the integrated school in the East Franklin, and it's ironic because I ended up principal at East Franklin. That's the school I was integrated into, which when I think back, was horrible as a young child and a black child and going into a school and being the only person of color. And the kids would, you know, they didn't understand. They just listened to what their parents say and they would call you the N-word. And I think that's kind of where I first learned the N-word. But um, it was, I was very shy. So that made made a difference. It was, I was one of ten children, and um, so my older and younger brothers and sisters they would take up for me because I was very shy and I'd cry. But it was it was difficult. It was very difficult. And when I think back on it, I didn't. It was not a good time. Over time, it got better. Um, but I think the worst thing was when they put us when they integrated the schools, they put like one black kid in each class instead of putting some of us together so that we would have friends or somebody we knew. So I think that was um, bad that they did us like that. Right now, I mean, everybody is talking about racism and racial justice in America. And I do hear from some people in the community that they don't think that, you know, racism existed in Macon County or in Western North Carolina, you know, before right now during this very political moment. Well, a lot of people refuse to see that. And some people 
they think because there wasn't a lot of problems, because they 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 didn't walk in their shoes. I remember racism. I, my it it was still in high school when my daughter was in high school, when my son was in school. It is still around now, and and people want to close their eyes. They had to be deaf and blind. But a lot of people they just don't want to own that or they look at it in a way well we didn't have any problems yeah as long as we stayed in our place and when i say you know place they um everything was fine but if you stepped out then you had some problems i remember as a little girl going to the um out there where the fairgrounds is there was a little playground and my sisters and I, we were on the little equipment out there playing, and this man made us get off, told us we were too big to be on it, and they and had some other little white kids that were the same size as we were, let them play on it. And I remember in the movie theater, we could not see it with the white people. We had the top balcony, which were the best seats. They didn't realize that, but we, you know, that was separated. You know, and in town, there were colored water fountains and white water fountains. And so I don't see how people can say there was no racism. They try to say separate but equal, but uh, that, that's, that's not true. Um, even in, uh, our, in the, our segregated school, we had old textbooks that would come down from the white schools. And we had to pay a fee for those little books that were already used. You open up your book and there's all these names of other kids in there. So, you know, we just kind of got the hand-me-downs. But anybody that says there was no racism in Macon County, they need to go back and, and talk to some people and look at history. I was reading, I don't know who wrote this article in the Franklin Press about they had did a report on slavery and they said that the slave, when they talked to the slaves, the slaves said that the masters fe- treated them well. Well, what if, what else, what's the slave going to do with you got Uncle Tom standing here, Mr. Tom standing here, and you're going to say, oh, no, he's mean to me? Of course they're going to say, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And back even in a Jim Crow time, they're not going to speak out. They could lose their job. And so... You know, it was it was alive and well, and it's still alive. Yeah, and I mean, just to give people some context, um, how old are you now? How old am I? I'm 63. <laughs> I forget. I'm six. I just I turned 63. Yeah, my daughter Valerie, she she uh, went to Franklin High School, and she graduated from high school. I think it was 2009, and my son graduated. 2016. He's over at Western now. But um, he had the most, Valerie was an athlete in high school, so she had it a little better. But as in elementary school, one of the one things that she remembers to this day is in her kindergarten class, when she was, uh, they were doing show and tell, and one of her little friends got up and said, oh, I can't play with Valerie. My dad said I can't play with Valerie anymore because she's a N-word. And it, Valerie, that's one thing. She did not know that word. We did not use that word. 
and she was just devastated. So she got her, you know, a lot of times when kids had parties, you know, they tell us they couldn't invite her, but it wasn't all of them. She had a group of friends, and as she grew up, it was a lot of good little girls. They came here and spent the night. She, they, she would go to their house. She said, you know, one of the things that bothered her in high school, you know, they, they would say the N-word and stuff and look at her, but she kind of just let it bounce off of her. But um, overall, she had, did really good in high school. She was a uh, student council president and all that kind of stuff. My son is more the type that, you know, you he's not going to let you get away with saying those things. And so he had some problems and some issues with kids in school that would call him gorilla, porch monkey, stuff like that. And he would tell me and I would call up principals and talk. And he didn't want me to paddle on him. He said, you know, he could take care of it. But, you know, my son should not have to go to school and worry about being um, bullied. And I'm sure it still happens over there. A lot of times when they, you tell the teachers, the teachers, a lot of them say, oh, just don't pay them any money, you know, don't pay any attention, it's gone. But it's difficult. And if people would look at it this way sometimes, you know, when they, they call you the N-word, if you would think about somebody calling you the B-word, wouldn't you be upset? and all that, and your parents would be upset, you'd be upset, teachers be upset. They think of it in that same way. All these things we're talking about kind of center around school. What made you want to be a teacher? Um, I actually, when I first started out, when I went off to college, I wanted to be, in, I, want, I majored in business. But once I got there, I saw that that's not what I really wanted to do, so I changed it over to education. And that's when I found my passion. Because growing up, I did a lot of babysitting. That's how I made a lot of my money. I babysat different people. You know, kids, I always babysat kids. Even when I got to college, I babysat for the professors. While other kids were out having a good time, I was at the professor's house babysitting their kids. And so, you know, my name was passed around because I, they really liked me. So they would come and pick me up from college at my dorm and take me and I'd go keep their kids and they bring me back to the dorm. So that's how I made money there. But um, it was just, it's just something about the joy I felt when I was working with students and just the, the little light. I know this kind of, everybody says it's a little light bulb go off, but it, it's just a, a passion that I have to help children, to work with children. And I love them, and they're they're the best little people. And when I think back on my teaching days, those are some of the best days of my life teaching. And I did after I retired, I did go back and do a, a interim for a teacher, and she had first grade, and it I enjoyed myself. I mean, it was just, uh, I went twice. I went one back and I uh, did a first grade and then I did a third grade, which is my favorite grade of all. But we did so much in third grade that we had so much fun, so much. I, when I taught, I taught it in a fun way. And I also taught them manners. We studied etiquette. 
it wasn't on the curriculum, but we we studied it and we'd have a little etiquette party and all that stuff. And now when I see kids, I just talked to one at, um, I think it was Bilo's a couple of days ago. He said, Miss Parks, I remember when you used to teach me and you taught etiquette. And he said, and I have the best table manners now. <laughs> and that's one thing they remember about me. So if that's it, if they, if they can learn to, to keep the elbows off the table and the napkin on the lap, they were good. You became a teacher in, in 1984 in Macon County, and then uh, wasn't until 2003 you became the lead teacher at Cartuga J, and then that led to you being the principal of East Franklin Elementary School. Tell me a little bit about that journey, you know, climbing, climbing the ranks to becoming an administrator in, in, in Macon County. It was a journey. It really was. It's not. It wasn't as easy for me as I look at some of these other people how they're climbing those ranks. Of to start out, when I got back to when I graduated from uh, the college I was at at Saint Paul and tried to get a teaching position, they'd always tell me, you know, they didn't have any um, openings or you overqualified, blah blah. So finally, I did get in as a teacher assistant after four years of, of trying. I worked, I taught as a teacher assistant for four years. And every time I would apply for a job that came open, a teaching position, they would tell me I didn't have enough experience, okay? There are people that's getting right out of college nowadays that go right in the classroom, and they were then too. Finally, I got um, a teaching position as Title I teacher at two different schools at uh, Otto and Union, which was Union Elementary. So I drove back and forth to those two, two schools as uh, Title I teacher. And then I, I did that for a couple of years, and then I became, uh, they had a third grade opening, and bless Harry Bell's heart, he gave me that position. And um, so I started, had third grade, and then moved on up, and I went back to a college. I, had, got, I already had my master's degree, I went back and started work on my EDS uh, specialist uh, administration. And then when, when uh, I was at Cartuga J and I wanted, they had, was, had an opening for a lead teacher and I applied for that. That wasn't easy. They told me I had to get my bus license. <laughs> so, and um, I think that was more, you know, trying to keep me from, getting that position. That's the way I see it now because a lot of time, nowadays you don't have to have any, that, a lot of them didn't have to have a bus license. Anyway, I got my bus license and so I got the job and then I, I was lead teacher for a year and then the next year uh, we had a new principal and I applied for that job but I felt like I wasn't really ready to be head principal right then and so Jan Gann came in as a assist, uh, as principal, and I learned so much from that lady. She was wonderful. She made sure I knew what was going on. She, you know, let me lead things, and so I learned a lot from her. And after that, when I when it became East Franklin School got open, I applied for that, and I got that job, and I was ready for it. I knew I uh, I felt like that's where I was supposed to be. You know, I heard a lot of people saying it was a difficult school and everything, but I loved it. 
and and I would have stayed longer. I started having health problems, but um, when I look back at that school at East Franklin, I had some. I had a good year. I had some good years, but it wasn't an easy. Back when I was work, trying to get in as a teacher, I had to go through the EEOC and the NAACP. And so those are journeys, you know, that's something I didn't want to take because I want to be want it to be hard because of me, of my abilities, my skills, what I had to bring to the table. But they wasn't seeing that. So I had to, kind of what you say, get reinforcements. Do you have any advice for people right now? Any, I know that kids are being sent home from school. There's a lot of racial justice movement in the, in the United States is still still going on and still moving forward. How, what do you want to say to people? Well, with the pandemic, I think we need to be patient and we need to be safe. We need to follow the guidelines that's out there for us to, to be safe. As far as racist stuff, I think we need to speak out. If you see what something's wrong, speak up. Stand out. Don't just stand back. If you don't say anything, it's going to continue. And I think our young people are going to pick this up. It's going to be up to them to change the way things are going now. And I think that needs to start in the schools, teaching not only you don't shouldn't just teach slavery in school, you know, teach other things how, you know, about the people that that made a way to teach the real history, not just part of the history. It's a shame for history. Uh, as when you look at the white people, it's their shame for history. But it, we, it wasn't the people that's here now that's do it that had happened, but it happened. And they need to acknowledge that. And we're going to have to go from there. And our people are going to have to get out and vote. We need somebody, real leaders in the in these in our government. And the only way we're going to do that is to get out vote. We need to listen and not just vote because of somebody's color. We need to listen, really look and see what they're saying and what's going to help us and make us all move forward. Because right now, I feel that we've moved backwards. That was Shirley Parks, Franklin resident and first black principal in Macon County Schools post-integration. She was speaking with BPR's Lily Knapp. And that brings our first episode of The Porch to a close. Thanks so much for joining us. The BPR news team is Cass Harrington, Helen Chickering, Lily Knapp, Matt Pikin, Corey Valancourt, and myself, Matt Bush. You can listen to this entire show, plus all our other work, with the free BPR mobile app through Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and at our website, BPR.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll hang out again very soon on The Porch. Take care and stay safe.